Uh, today we're looking at prayer, and prayer on the one level is very simple. It's our communication to God. But on a deeper level, it doesn't always seem to make sense. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, March 16, 2014. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We are continuing our series in the book of Matthew, our longest series ever. Actually, we were in Deuteronomy for a long time, too. Um, that this is a short sermon again, but Jesus does not hesitate to pack it with all kinds of information. Mostly, it says rules to live by in chapter 6, mostly talking about here's God's expectations for you. And if you ask yourself, like, what, what is my life? What, what should my life look like compared to the world? The answer is pretty simple. Um, Jesus says your life should look different. You should love people that don't love you. Um, you should um, recognize that God desires more than just the actions of things. In fact, God desires your heart. And this comes all the way back from, uh, we said we confess it in our sins last week. Well, it comes all the way back to a section that we looked at earlier. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Jesus repeats this again in the New Testament, basically saying God desires not just doing the right thing, but doing the right thing with pure motives. And that's where it gets difficult. And uh, we gave the example of the kids standing up, but we asked a question in grow groups this week that said, okay, if you, we talked about giving to the needy last week. If you uh, don't want to give to the needy, does that mean you shouldn't do it because you don't want to be a hypocrite? And the gist of the question comes down to this. Before you do the right thing, do you, it always, do, are your motives always in line? Or to say it another way, um, to flip that, Sometimes do you do things, um, sometimes you have the desire to do things, but you just don't do it. I think that's kind of how your life functions, isn't it? I mean, the best example in a secular world would be a diet. How many of you have had the desire to get on a diet or some kind of fitness plan, but the actual doing of it is not so easy? Most people that I know, I don't know anyone who's just like, yeah, I just stay fit, and I hate it, I don't like to do it, I think it's dumb, and, and I eat well. I mean, that doesn't function like that. Most people are like, I think this is a good concept, this is good, and I just don't really want to do it. On the flip side, can you think of an example in your life where you do something that you know is right, because you said God desires this, but inside you don't always feel all that motivated? Like when it says give your whole heart, you're maybe like shooting for 25%. Can you think of an example in your life where you're doing the right thing even though you don't really want to? Following traffic laws. That would be a good one. Uh, raising your kids. Someone gave that as an example. I think that's a fine example. It is not every day that you start whistling like it's a new day when your child is crying and you're tired and you're like, great, you know, that my motives are blinking because they're so happy. Sometimes you just say, God, this is what you have given me as your servant. I desire to do your will, but really right now I don't all that much. I need your help. So this is one of the, this is like this friction that we have, and part of that friction comes because we're not in heaven yet. Right? I mean, are you in heaven? We live in a pretty nice area, but we're not exactly in heaven. There's a lot of days that probably, um, in this dark world, there's a lot of days that kind of feel like this. This is my representation of work. You ever feel like this? And... Uh, <laughs> Did you say no next to your boss? <laughs> okay. Um, there's many days that I feel like this, and then you didn't see the full graphic because I've got a picture where you are. You're underneath there, right there. And you feel totally buried, and you're thinking like, oh my goodness, I'm so overwhelmed, and things, I, I'm 
focusing on this and I don't know how I'm going to get this all done and like your stress level starts to go and go and go and you're like, how is this actually going to function? Well, when are you the most productive in your whole life? Like the most productive week of your whole life? Just before vacation. Like before, if you're getting ready to go on vacation, somehow all things get done. It's like miraculous. So it takes you like a whole week. You get done in like three hours. You're like, I don't know what the deal is. So this spring break, I'm getting ready um, to, I, I mix those slides up. If you can't see that, that is a powder day in the trees with champagne powder. I'm going to Steamboat in about a week. That's my representation of heaven. So I didn't, I didn't have a picture of heaven, but this is about as close as I can come up to. I'm really excited to go. But until I go, there's a whole lot of stuff that have to happen. I've got to get next week's sermon done. I've got to get the grow group questions done. Um, I've got a conference call to train a guy who's starting a church in Aiken, South Carolina. You know, all this stuff is going on. And what happens if all I thought about was vacation? None of that stuff would actually happen. You'd just be dreaming every day of the powder and things like that. But instead, here's the reality. I've got to go back a slide. To be the most productive in your life, you need one foot in your work and one foot in vacation. And what I mean by that, and that's kind of how it functions as Christians. If you put both feet here on this earth, you become overwhelmed. If you put both feet looking at all the trouble and how lousy things are, you become overwhelmed and it's awful. But if you have one foot that's in heaven and one foot here, you suddenly have some perspective. We're not in heaven yet. And so what Jesus gives us, and this is pretty amazing, what Jesus gives us to bridge the gap is he says, I want to give you prayer. And this is your opportunity to be able to talk to me. So here's what Jesus says. Oh, I forgot about this slide. Does anyone recognize that? It's pretty dark. The dark night is not even visible. That is incredible. That's how it works. This is, uh, this is Batman right here. You can see his shiny suit because that's uh, who wouldn't wear a shiny suit if you were fighting villains. And this is Commissioner Gordon. And what is the thing in the middle? The bat symbol. Now, does every human being get the bat symbol? I mean, does every person have like one of these industrial-sized lights? Um, you would think, because Gotham City has so much pollution, that that's how much electricity they go through. But that's not the situation. Not every human being gets this. Only Commissioner Gordon, right? So it's not like anyone has trouble with their sink. You know, they, their cat's in the tree. They're like, uh, my washer broke, so I'm going to flip out the bat signal. And like, he shows up, and you're like, seriously, your washing machine is broken? Like, that's not how it works. Only Commissioner Gordon gets it. What does this have to do with you as a Christian? Does every human being get the privilege of prayer? No. God does not preach prayer to the whole entire planet. Jesus, when he does the Sermon on the Mount, is not talking to 5,000 people. He's talking to these disciples that come close. And he says, here's some things that you should know, and here's something that you have to bridge the gap until you have both feet in heaven. You get prayer. And this is how Jesus explains it. When you pray... Uh, do not be like the hypocrites, for their love, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. He said something similar last week. He said, like, if you give to the poor, you should do this in private. Otherwise, you've already received your reward. What's the gist of this? The gist of it is this. If your desire is for people to recognize what an awesome prayer, if that's a word, what an awesome prayer you are, it's not that hard. You can go do this in front of people and people would say, wow, that is a fantastic prayer. That is amazing. What Jesus is telling you is that's about as far as your reward is going to go. That's the benefit of that prayer. The same thing goes when you give to the needy. 
If your desire is for people to recognize how much you give to the needy, is that hard to do? Would, would people be excited for you if you gave to the needy? Ted Turner, uh, about a decade ago, gave a billion dollars to a charity. I was impressed. If you go through the list, I was doing some research last week on giving. If you go through the list, I'm pretty impressed. Mark Zuckerberg gave like $250 million. So that's like 1% of his income, I think. But, but he gave $250 million. That's a lot of money. I'm impressed by that. Uh, Warren Buffett, who's uh, the oracle from Omaha, he gave like roughly $2 billion because he gives stock options or something like that to a charity every year. I'm impressed. And what Jesus is saying, if your desire is for people to see what you do and be impressed, that's as far as your reward goes. But really, when you give to the poor, what did Jesus say last week? This is between you and God. You honor me, you honor my word, you honor my system. Now with prayer, it does not make sense to stand up in front of everyone and pray because this is between a relationship between you and God. So he says, when you pray, this is how I want you to do it. Uh, Go to a room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So this is a private matter. And so far, prayer is pretty cool, right? This all makes sense? I've got a question. Do you really get prayer? I don't. I don't get it. It makes sense for my kids to ask me for things because I forget things. It makes sense for my kids to make a request of me because, you know, I forget to pick them up early so they can go to a sleepover. It makes sense that my kids would ask me stuff because I cannot read their minds at all, right? I mean, I'm not Edward from Twilight, and I'm going, oh, what do you, oh, I know what you need. I have no idea what my kids need, so it makes sense that they ask. It makes sense that my kids would ask for things because I don't always have their best interests in mind. Sometimes I'm selfish, and my kids have to say, hey, Dad, can you, you know, make some lunch because Mom's not here? I'm like, yes, I can, because I would utterly and totally forget. That makes sense. Is that how God functions? God does not forget. God knows all things. God is all-powerful, God knows, in fact, this is how Jesus says it. Don't babble on like pagans, like a filibuster prayer. That's not going to work. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. So does it make sense that we pray to God when he already knows what we need? And the Bible says that he loves us and he's going to give us what's best for us. Does this make any sense? Does it make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't get prayer. I wish I could teach it in such a way that the lights would go on and you say, I I totally understand it. Because if God is all-powerful, he can do all things, he loves us, and he already knows our prayers before we ask, why do we even bother? So some people have suggested, like, you know, the reason we have prayer is actually for our benefit. And I don't think we can lean that far. A couple weeks ago, I drove to church, so Owen thought this was cool. So he calls me on my phone. He takes Amy's phone, and he calls me using FaceTime. We're in the house. He thinks it's hilarious. So he calls me, and, you know, we see each other's picture. He thinks it's like the ultimate prank, and I don't know why it's all that funny. So I'm on my way. I'm like, hey, bud, I got to go to church. Maybe you can help me get there. He's like, awesome. So I turn the camera around. You know, I put it right on the dash, and I tell him, you got to tell me. And I'm looking out here, and he can see in the car I'm like, you got to tell me when to slow down and like when to turn and stuff like that. So I like start going towards the car. He's like, no, 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 turn, 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 turn. Okay, okay. And that slow stop sign, do you see any stop signs? And I'm putting the brakes on. And we, we safely made it to church. And in his mind, he actually helped his dad 
somehow get to church safely as he's looking through the camera and I'm listening to the, was he doing anything besides entertaining me while I made sure I did not hit other vehicles and I turned at the right spots? I and mean, what happens if he goes, Dad, just keep going? I still would have turned, right? So is that how it works with God? I mean, God already knows what's going to happen. He's in control, and he's just laughing at us. Well, we like, dear Lord, um, can you uh, do this for me? He's like, sure. And he's already known. Where, the blinker's already on when we put in the request. Humanly speaking, that's what prayer feels like on some level. But from a human level, this is why I like prayer. I like that Jesus and my Father listens to me. I like that when I'm scared or overwhelmed with stuff, God says, I want you to come to me. I like that God says that he's actually going to do something when I ask. I don't get how this functions. I don't. But I like that God says, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to maybe give more blessings. Maybe that's the best way we can understand it. There's like a pool of blessings that when we ask for them, God says, you know what? I will give that to you. But I just don't get it. And I like that Jesus tells us, this is how I want you to pray. This is a, a familiar prayer, the, the most familiar prayer on the whole planet. Probably prayed more times than any other prayer ever. I've for sure prayed more than any other prayer. And I put it into sections. And I know you're looking at your watch saying, like, are we now going to go through the whole Lord's Prayer? We're going to go through this reasonably quickly, some sections a little faster than others. I put the whole prayer up here because I wanted to um, put it in sections because I think it's a little bit easier to understand this way. Because there's, just read this to yourself. I think there's at least two sections that don't make a lot of sense. You're like, why are you a pastor if you don't even get prayer? Um, but I think there's two sections in here that are fairly difficult. And we're going to touch on those for sure, and then we're going to come back. The best way, I think, to understand the first part, and I think there's a good argument to this, the way that the, the Greek is laid out, is that last line, on earth as it is in heaven is an umbrella term for the first part. So it's not a request like, Dear Lord, uh, may your name be hallowed, may your kingdom come, and then only your will function like it is in heaven. That's actually talking about, I think, all three. So what we're asking God is this. God, I'm here on this earth. I've got one foot on this earth, and it's frustrating, and there's sin, and I'm, I don't like it. There's things that are... Um, I wish I was in heaven, to tell you the truth. Just like I wish during the week I was at steamboat, right? This is how it functions. You're saying, God, I wish I was in heaven with you now. And what your prayer is, is this. God, in heaven, your will is always done. In heaven, your name is always praised. It's not like angels screw it up, right? I mean, they're not like, dear Lord, oh, I messed that one up. No, it is perfect every time. God's name is always hallowed. They always listen to God. His will is always done, and his kingdom is always moving the way he wants it to function. And while we sit on this planet, we're saying, God, that is going to be awesome, but we're not there yet. What I want is that to function like this while I'm here. And how do you do that? You, you listen to God's word, and you honor his word. It's not of, uh, you say, God, what does your word say? You love people. You say, God, that you desire all people to be in heaven. God, you say that you love me. You say that you're going to take care of me. As perfectly as that functions in heaven, in this sinful world, I want that to happen here. That's your prayer. Can you trust God 100%? What do you think? 
This is a different concept for us because you cannot trust anyone 100%. No human being. Have you ever, um, has anyone ever had like a doctor or a chiropractor? No, you, you guys are all whole medicine people. But you've had a doctor, you've had a chiropractor. I have a chiropractor, good guy. Um, he gives me a great deal because I'm a pastor. So I go there and he gives me advice. And some of the advice I agree with and I think that's fantastic advice. And some stuff I think, uh, I'm not sure about that. So I don't fully trust him 100%. Has anyone ever done like a, a fitness or a workout program and you followed it to the T perfectly? This happened to me. I was on something. I was going to get in a competition. I'm like, I'm going to follow the program, do the exact times I'm supposed to do. I totally burned up. Like, I was in a hole because I had, like, no energy. I wasn't sick. It just, like, slowly the accumulative effects of this had just worn me completely out. So I can't fully trust that. Can you fully trust God? Absolutely. And when you say to God, God, I trust you 90%, that's not saying, God, I honor and hallow your name. When you say, God, I trust you 100%, it is. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread, or give us today our daily bread. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because this comes up in the coming weeks. But the gist of it is this. What's our biggest issue as Americans as we talk about our daily bread? How much stuff do we actually need and how much of our prayers are for once? And I think the simple version of this prayer was, God, help me recognize what I need versus what I want. And just to help you with that, I found an MIT chart. This tells you if you live in our county, this is your livable wage. So, for example, you are a single adult. Um, That's how much money you have to make an hour, and here's typical expenses. It's actually a cool website. If you fit all the way over to here, um, three adults and, or two, three adults, that would be very awkward. Um, Two adults and three children, they give you an idea of what you need. And all I'm putting that chart up is to say, we probably think we need a lot more stuff than we do. And this at least breaks it down to say, is my expectations realistic? And if it's not, I think you tailor your prayer. If God is meeting your needs, you say, God, thank you for meeting my daily needs. Some of you are reading it, you're like, I can't believe a family spends that much on food. Um, we do. Um, so you're saying, God, you've met my daily needs, thank you. Or, you know, God, my job is not quite enough to even meet subsistence for my family. I pray that some other opportunity can work. I pray that somehow you can meet these daily needs. That would be the prayer. Okay. Forgive us our debts as we for, uh, have also forgiven our debtors. How do you feel about that sentence? Who's good with it? Awesome. So we got one out of like 100 people that says, this is an awesome idea. As you face God on the last day, you're, and God says, should I forgive you, God? You're like, look at my track record. I'm dead money for forgiven people. I mean, all the time. I mean, someone does something to me, no problem. I can't even remember stuff people have done. You still feeling good about that sentence? Right? Can you, this is, I think, pretty scary. But I think it's mis... I think it's mis uh, the translation makes it a little difficult. So it's, God, forgive us our debts. And is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Believers or unbelievers when he teaches this prayer. He's talking to believers. And do believers forgive people? Yes. And that's actually um, an aorist, with, not to get nerdy on you, uh, but as also we have forgiven our debtors. It's essentially saying as we, um, it's past tense. As I forgave my debtors, which under Christ we have done, um, let me forgive those who are, uh, have done something to me. A few things. One is a story. And Jesus has one classic story when he talks about forgiveness. Can you think of what story that is in your head? 
It's about this guy who owes somebody a lot of money. And he owes him a lot, a lot of money, like to the tune of a billion dollars. And the guy goes to the one he owes and says, listen, I've got, let's work this out. I owe you this ton of money, but I think this can, this can get worked out. Get me on a payment plan. You know, I don't know what the payment plan would be with interest on a multi-billion dollar debt. It would be, I can't even imagine. And the guy finally recognizes and says, you know what, you're not going to pay this. I'll take the loss. Forget about it. And you've been there. Has anyone ever got rid of all your debt and what a great relief that is? Like you've, maybe you've owed a car. And how exciting is it when you finally pay off your car or something like that and you're like, I do not have to make that car payment. It's this fantastic feeling. Like there's this weight on you. And then you, you, it changes your outlook because you feel like I'm in the hole, I'm in the hole, and suddenly, you know, debt is gone. And I could just use a little bit more and my life would be awesome. That's it. You know, like just a little bit more and things would be great. And that's what happens to this guy. So this guy is, uh, owes like a billion dollars and he runs into this other guy who owes him about $10,000, which is significant coin. And he runs into him. And you can just imagine his mind thinking like, okay, I was in this huge hole like a day ago. And now if I just had a little bit of seed money, I could do something. My life would be a little bit better. And he gets frustrated and he says, hey, you've got to pay me that money. And of course, the guy who owed him, uh, he owed originally, finds out about it and then um, sends him to prison. What's the takeaway on this? Is $10,000 a lot of money? You're supposed to say yes. You guys are living, you, that chart doesn't mean anything to you if you're thinking 10000 is not a big deal. All right, 10000 is a significant amount of money. But if I said, like, if we're going to make, like, a, a graph, if we're going to make a graph, like one of these, uh, what do they call a bar chart or something like that? My kids know all the right names. Um, here's $10,000. What would a billion dollars look like on that, on that graph? Right? I mean, you'd, you'd have to get, like, banner paper and turn it sideways and shoot it up. So it would be, like... $10,000 would be like here, and then like the thing would shoot all the way to the top. And then if someone said, you're like, hey, is $10,000 on this graph a lot of money, what would your response be? Probably not so much, right? And this is what Jesus is trying to teach you. He's saying the only conceivable way it's possible to forgive people what they've done to you, which are significant and hurtful and hard things, is if you look at what Christ has forgiven you, which is a bar graph all the way to the ceiling. And that's it. And as soon as, as soon as you take your eyes out of heaven, as soon as you take a foot out of heaven and you just stare at that debt, what happens? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you put a foot back in heaven and you see what Christ has done to you and what other people gets a lot smaller. Which gets to our last point. Uh, these two should, I don't think, should ever be taken separately because this is the second thing that I think is really hard in this section. And lead us not into temptation. Does God lead you into temptation? No, so this doesn't really make sense. Other parts of Scripture say that God does not lead you into temptation. I think a better way to take this, and there's good arguments for this too, is these never should be separated as you think about it. So just cover up the first one and just read the second one. So this is the negative way to put it. The bottom one is the positive way to put it. The positive way is God deliver us from the evil one. We say evil in the prayer. It's actually evil one in translation. So God deliver me from Satan. And what does that mean exactly? That means, to say it in a negative way, I want you to, to deliver me from the temptations that he brings. Does that make sense? So, when we say the Lord's Prayer, which we get to do in a little bit, think of it in a chunk. The top chunk, we're saying, on this earth, we want all these things to happen as it's already happening in heaven. God, give me just enough to make it by, and I'll be, let me give you praise if you give me more. 
God, help me forgive by looking at what you've forgiven me as I look at what other people have done to me, and ultimately, God, deliver me from Satan. You got a foot on this earth, and you got a foot in heaven. The devil wants so badly for you to put both feet in this planet and completely forget about heaven because it changes your perspective. Then you don't want to forgive. Then you, you don't care about other things. You, you, you say to yourself, God, I just want to have a good time with my friends rather than recognizing what God says as well. He wants your friends to be in heaven. Um, everything changes. What is going to happen to prayer when you get to heaven? The Lord's Prayer is obsolete. The most said prayer, the one that you have memorized very likely, is obsolete. What are you going to say? Like, dear Lord, may uh, your name be hallowed, actually as it's happening right now. Um, Dear Lord, may your will be done as it happens all the time where we're at right now. Uh, May your kingdom come as it's kind of functioning right now. Does that make sense? It's like my kids as they sit down for dinner saying, Dad, I'm going to say a prayer. Dear Lord, please give us food. The food's right there, kids, right? This doesn't make any sense. What's going to happen on the second part? Are you going to pray in heaven, Dear Lord, give me my daily bread. Like the feast that never ends, do you think it's going to run out of food and there's going to be any kind of question? You're like, we've got to get to the front of the line because it's going to run out. I don't think that's happening. So that doesn't make any sense either. Uh, Dear Lord, let me forgive people when no one is doing anything against you. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. What about the end? God, deliver us from the evil one. God's already delivered you from the evil one by the time you get in heaven. So the Lord's Prayer is totally obsolete. What is left for prayer when you get to heaven? What's left? Two things. Two. Dear Lord, I praise your holy name. You get to give prayers of thanks, as the angels do, and we get to sing on communion Sunday. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is our prayer in heaven, and a prayer of thanks. That says, God, just as you have delivered me from the evil one, you've forgiven me in Christ, you let your will happen on this earth. Thank you for letting me be in this position in heaven. And thank you that the Lord's prayer is obsolete, and all I can say is prayer and thanks. When you pray, Jesus gives us a model. Amen.